Folks, welcome back to the Philcraft Revival Podcast. Uh, having fun this week again. Still no internet at my place, so this is a recording I did before we moved. Um, I got it edited and whatnot, and then I'll be down to the library trying to upload it and, um, yeah, hopefully get it up online where you guys can actually listen to it. Um, if you're listening to this, this worked. It may have just taken a little longer than normal. But yeah, uh, this week we're we're chatting with Jake Levins. Jake is a, a butcher, um, known as the Roving Butcher, uh, out of Massachusetts. And uh, he teaches a lot of butchery workshops and shows folks how to um, do their own on-farm uh, butchery. So um, it now being autumn and uh, cooler weather coming on it being kind of the traditional time to slaughter your your homestead animals um i thought it would be interesting to do an episode about butchery and um chat with jake about some of his suggestions for folks who are doing at home butchery whether that be uh their own animals they've raised sheep pigs uh beef etc or whether it be uh wild games since hunting seasons are are now underway um I, I chatted with him just a little too late. I had just the day before been um, processing an elk. So I got a couple ideas from this episode that I was like, oh man, I wish I had known this 24 hours ago. Uh, give me a couple cuts to, to think about looking for and different muscle groups and give me some ideas on what to do with things. But oh well, next year. Anyways, yeah, I think this is a fun episode. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, since I grew up vegetarian, I've only really been eating meat the last couple of years. Uh, this was definitely an interesting one for me. Um, you know, I've I have a uh, let's say limited knowledge of of what cuts come from what part of the animal and and where you find things and and what what different parts are used for and whatnot. So it was interesting chatting with a butcher. Um, I think it was a, a fun conversation. Uh, I really enjoy chatting with Jake. So hopefully you get something out of it as well and. Uh, yeah. Jake was a uh, great guest. Really enjoyed chatting with him. Um, if you do live in, I think he said Western Massachusetts, uh, if you live in the Western Massachusetts, New York type area, um, I would suggest taking a look at some of his classes. Uh, if you're interested in learning a little more about butchery, I would sure like to uh, take a class at some point in the future and, and legitimately learn uh, how this is done and uh, what the different muscle groups are and in, in more of a hands-on format. So it's something I'm going to look into in the future. But uh, any resources mentioned uh, will be found over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash 25. Thanks for listening, folks. It's been a lot of fun. So I've really enjoyed putting episodes together and chatting with different folks and uh, hope you've enjoyed the conversations as well. So yeah, with that, let's uh, let's go jump into the episode with Jake. We started off talking about his business and uh, what a what a week in the life of a butcher looks like. I sort of uh, have two lives as a butcher, not totally separate, but but somewhat separate. So I have uh, my sort of regular weekday job, 
um, where I am a butcher for a, a pig farm here where I live. I'm, I'm based in Western Massachusetts and, uh, I work for a farm on the other side of the border in uh, the Hudson Valley of New York. And there we break down anywhere from three to five pigs a week. And, and I, I'm the, the butcher there. So I, I'm in charge of breaking those pigs down, um, making sausage and preparing any other, um, value added products we might be making. So, pork belly roasts, uh, various pâtés, riettes, et cetera. And so that's yeah. what I do Monday through Friday. Um, we, we are uh, in the USDA inspected facility, so I'm there eight to four. And then uh, on weekends and sometimes in the evenings and stuff, I do work as the roving butcher. And that's primarily uh, sort of an educational role that I play, although it, it involves, it's always on-farm uh, slaughter and butchery, but but the goal is not so much to be going back to the same farm every year as much as going and teaching people how to how to slaughter and butcher their own animals so that they can do it themselves next time. And so I do one on one or you know private with various farmers and homestead. And then uh, my favorite thing to do is to do larger uh, workshops uh, with the public. So. Often I will partner with an educational institution or uh, uh, various not-for-profits. Uh, I've, I've worked for years with uh, NOFA, which is the Northeast Organic Farmers Association, um, Smith College, uh, UMass, uh, various public high schools and private high schools. And there I, I, we do slaughter workshops, uh, butchering workshops, and curing workshops. And, and that, that, for me, the educational work is, is the most fun and satisfying part of what I do. That does sound like a really fun, uh, yeah, little side side business to your side business. It kind of sounds like, but yeah, yeah, I, I would like to take a butchery workshop at some point. I need to find one that's a little closer to me. Um, sorry, Massachusetts is a little far to be yeah, traveling no, for, a, for a butchery <laughs> workshop, but I would like to take one at one point. Uh, I don't have a whole lot of butchery experience at all. A little bit, you know, helping neighbors when I was a kid butcher their chickens and goats and whatnot. And then these last couple of years, actually, I talked to you just a little too late. Uh, yesterday, I was butchering up an elk that my brother and I got when we were up the mountain earlier oh, in the week. So I love elk um, so much. One of my favorite meats. Uh, likewise. It's phenomenal. So, um, yeah, chatting with you just a little bit late. But I, I did kind of want to focus on the you know, you were saying your favorite part of it is the educational trying to teach people and you don't necessarily want to be going back to the same farm and doing their animals for them every year, but rather teach them how to do it. And that's kind of what I wanted to base our conversation around is kind of get some of the information out to people on, uh, I, I know it's going to be hard to teach them like mm-hmm. cut here, do this, do that, but kind of like the general overview, of um, principles that you would think about as a butcher and things you should do or not do or techniques, tips, anything like that for people who are butchering at home. Uh, but it does sound, it sounds like then you're, you're, um, you said three to five pigs a week on the, on the farm and that's, that keeps you busy all week long. Yeah. I mean, between the, the cutting, the, uh, sausage making and then the packing, it, it, uh, it keeps me busy Monday through Friday, you know, and, uh, I usually, so the way my, my schedule works out, at the the plant where we process the pigs is on Mondays I am grinding and mixing the sausage that's that's made from the trim from the week before, uh, and then Tuesday we bring in that week's pigs. Usually by uh, Wednesday I'm I've taken those pigs which are whole and, and 
broken them down completely into their various retail cuts, as well as the trim for sausage and any other product we might be making the following week. Then Thursdays, uh, I am either working on more value-added product, maybe the pork belly roast or getting ready for pate, um, and then starting to pack all the cuts. And that that is not the sexiest or most fun part of job, but an equally important <laughs> part of job. Uh, so spend a lot of time in front of a cryovac machine and printing out labels. And yeah. then Friday, uh, it's a combination of finishing up and cleaning things up. You know, any of the organs that I haven't gotten to, just trimming those up for to put in the freezer or for dog food or whatever, um, finishing packing various cuts and sausages, and then a fair amount of time putting together the various spice mixes for the following week's sausages and pâtés, riettes, bacons, etc. Prepping for the next week. Yeah. yeah. Do you do you guys sell very many of the, uh, you were just talking about the organs. Do you guys have a market for the organ meat there at all? Is that sold very commonly? So it, it depends on the time of year, but also uh, what we're, you know, what we're trying to do. So sometimes we're keeping, for instance, the livers for ourselves to make the pâtés. Um, sometimes yeah. uh, we're getting special requests either from chefs or home cooks for uh, organ meat, you know, whether they are making their own pâtés or, or experimenting with other things. And then my boss, who has several uh, livestock dogs at her farm, plus a few other farmers we work with and are close to come and pick up the organ meat for, for their livestock dogs. Um, and that's a great way to uh, use the organ meats that, that aren't as popular, like the kidneys. Yeah. And I'm sure the dogs love it. Yeah, they love it. Gotta keep those livestock dogs happy. <laughs> uh, um, so, so that's a, that's a pig farm you work with, uh, when you're doing a lot of the, the mobile butchery or teaching the workshops or whatever, is it still mostly pigs you deal with, or is it a lot of other small livestock that you end up butchering? Yeah, I would say it's about a 50, 50, uh, pigs, um, or, uh, lamb slash goat slash mutton. Um, and, okay. uh, that, that's generally what I focus on. Rarely do beef occasionally when I'm going into like, a uh, a college uh, working with the dining services there, we might break down the beef, um, but mostly it's, it's like you said, smaller livestock, pigs, uh, goats, and sheep. Okay. And are they all broken down fairly similarly or are there some pretty significant differences between them? Yeah, no, I mean, generally it's, it's broken down the same way. Um, you know, the, the size difference in animals means that you can get different kinds of cuts out of them. But the, the basic approach to breaking down a four-legged animal is, is really the same. And, and you can find the same cuts uh, in any of those animals. It's really just about how big they are. So for instance, skirt steak from a beef, I really love, but it's pretty hard to find a valuable skirt steak on a lamb just because it's not big enough to, to make it worth cooking. You know what I mean? But it, it's there. Yeah. One of the things we do at Raven and Boar is uh, Ruby, my boss, she, she likes to raise her pigs much bigger than most people do. So a uh, standard market weight pig is somewhere between 200 and 220 pounds. She likes to raise her pigs anywhere between 300 and 350 pounds. And that does a couple things for us. It gives us more, uh, more yield in terms of, uh, the shoulder and, and being able to make more sausage that also the muscles get slightly bigger. So we're able to pull skirt steaks and flank steaks from, from the, the okay. uh, pig, which on a market weight pig, you can't usually do. But but the skirts, those flanks, they get big, big enough where you really can pull them and they're uh, a significant 
uh, portion of meat that that is really fun to play with. And so that's, you know, that that gets to be really fun. I know from the from just like the livestock raising point of view, though, a lot of times we butcher because at, at that point you start getting less mass produced per feed that you're given it. Um, your efficiency goes down. Has she found that having some of those larger muscle groups and different cuts that she's able to offsets the fact that it, it costs more to raise them to that to that point? Do you have an idea? You know, I'm I'm not in the in the books and I'm not involved with the the raising part of it. But for her, they've made the decision that it, it's worth it having that extra feed and that extra time. You know, one of the mm-hmm. other reasons a lot of people don't like to raise their pigs that big is you get so much more back fat and uh, it's yeah. hard to, to do with that back fat. You you can only incorporate so much fat into your your cuts and sausage. Um, but we find various ways of using that back fat. Um, whether it's rendering it and selling lard at the farmer's markets or experimenting with making other products like whipped lardo, et cetera. But, but, you know, we do most of, of what we have in the freezer at this point is boxes of back fat. Um, and occasionally we will uh, wholesale that to other, uh, other producers who are trying to incorporate more fat if they're making like a dry curd salami or something like that. So, Yeah, that'd actually be something I'd be interested in. I need to find a butcher around here who has a lot of, extra fat um simply from the the lard point of view i yeah you know, would like to start sourcing my own uh fats and oils around here locally a little better but i i honestly have no idea where to go about finding back fat so or fat in general yeah you large amounts of your local so big i should probably go talk to a few of the local butchery places and yeah yeah we don't do a lot of pig farming around here it's mainly cattle mainly cattle around here mainly grazing so a lot right. of pastures and whatnot but sure um yeah, I need to need to figure out what I'm doing with the fat. Um, so you were saying the process is fairly similar for all these animals, um, breaking them down and whatnot. Uh, that's that's where I want to jump into here in a couple minutes. Sure. But before we do that, your your website says you trained as a nose to tail butcher. Can you explain what that means? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I was trained under the philosophy that you need to uh, your job as a butcher is to try to figure out how to utilize every part of the animal. And I learned how to how to deal with every part of the animal. So in uh, post-industrial uh, butchery, you know, starting after World War II, the, the butchery in America became very sort of uh, segmented. So there, you know, you might go into if you worked on the, in the slaughterhouse, you, you killed the animal and then you broke it down into primals. You know, one person worked one part of the line and just maybe broke split the animal then the then the next person just broke the animal into the quarters and then the next person down the line maybe uh you know deboned them and then that those cuts would subprimals or primals would get bagged up boxed up put in a refrigerator sent on the truck and then they would end up in the grocery store where the grocery store butcher really is just basically a meat cutter just fabricating steaks or chops from from these subprimals that have already been processed somewhere else and uh, I was trained how to do all of that so I yep. can see a whole animal and then bring it down to all the various cuts but that also means figuring out you know what to do with the jowls what to do with the ears what to do with the organ meat um, and so it, it's both uh, it has to do with understanding the craft of butchery and understanding how to take that animal from, you know, the whole animal and bring it down to all the cuts, but also a, a philosophy of really utilizing and valuing every part of the animal. And that's something I really appreciate too. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to chat about it and with you 
because yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of a difference between you know, being a meat cutter, like you said, in a grocery store and just chopping up the, the subprimals versus dealing with the whole animal and trying to find a use for all those uh, unusual bits and pieces. I mean, in a grocery store, you're not going to find things like the jowls or the ears, yeah. or at least you don't around here. Right. So that was something I wanted to kind of chat about and chat with you. And um, later on, we'll, we'll touch on kind of some guidance, hopefully for those of us who aren't used to dealing with these pieces as to what, what pieces we should look for and, and what to do with them. But Great. So, uh, like I mentioned to you, I, I listened to the podcast episode you did with the uh, Farm Traveler podcast about a year ago, um, and then I, I had also seen your book. It's on my to read list. Um, I saw it when it came out about a year ago, but I haven't managed to get to it yet. Sure. The list is too long. But <laughs> yeah, I get that. That being said, um, one one thing I really liked in that episode you you were chatting about how you had just done a. Um, you had just done some butchery work for the, uh, the Hancock shaker village. And you mm. said one of the, the elders there told you that, um, they, they lived in their philosophy that you should never eat an animal you didn't love. Yes. Which I, I definitely agree with and identify with. So, um, just quickly your thoughts on that. And then, uh, let's touch a little on the kind of the proper or respectful handling of the animal anywhere from, from slaughter through cutting it up to cooking it and making sure you don't yeah, waste it or anything like that. Sure. So, I mean, I, gr- I grew up in uh, rural Western Mass, as, as I mentioned, and I, I still live there now. And uh, we grew up um, next to uh, a couple who uh, had a homestead. He, Scott, uh, grew up on a dairy farm and he became an excavator, but he never wanted to give up the farming lifestyle and wanted to continue to raise animals as, as he did growing up. And so we, you know, during the summers we would uh, play with the calves and the piglets and we would ride uh, the cows and, and sometimes the sows, if they would let us, um, we named those animals. And then in the fall, they, uh, a neighbor would, would butcher them and we'd spend the winter eating them. And, you know, every, every winter was a different, uh, animal. So, you know, one win- winter might be Buster Burgers. Another winter was Sam Burgers. And that was just normal. And, you know, that's what I grew up around. And then uh, moved away from home to go to college and, and live in New York City and realized that that wasn't actually normal anymore, although it had been 75 years ago. And yeah. uh, that most people were really disconnected from where their meat came from. And uh, then I became a butcher and was able to sort of reconnect to that process. And that that's really important to me. And that's what it's really about, that, to be able to to feel that connection either with, with the farmer or with the butcher and know, know that, that the butcher and the farmer had that connection with the animal and cared about the animal. Animal welfare is really important to me. And to have that sort of philosophy and approach going into eating meat, really uh, a sort of a, a an awareness and, and uh, gratitude towards towards being able to to eat that that animal. Um, I grew up in a Jewish family, although and we're not religious. The I still sort of think about sort of the the basic idea behind eating kosher, which is really about eating mindfully, and, and you know other cultures have that as well. I, I think about it in those terms of, you know, obviously I eat pork and I love pork, but it's about being mindful about what you're eating and that that starts with how that animal lived its life and making sure that that animal lived its best life and, and died in a, um, in the 
best possible circumstances. And then my job now as a butcher is to make sure that both the life of, of that animal and also the incredibly hard work that the farmer puts into raising that animal is, is really honored. And so that's how yeah. I think about my job as a butcher is, is to an, honor both the animal's life and the work of the farmer. And then to be able to provide a high quality product to, to the consumer, to, to the eaters. And um, I, that's part of what I love about living in my community or in a rural community is to, to have that both the direct connection to the farmer, but also the direct connection to the consumer, knowing the people who are buying the meat from them and having that, knowing they trust me yeah. and they trust the farmer and, and having that direct connection. So I, I really love the fact that we have, you know, where I work now that, and, and in my community, we have such uh, wonderful farmer's markets where, where you can have that direct connection. Like many people, probably that's something I've been looking for. Um, I, I grew up vegetarian, so I was vegetarian essentially until I started hunting. Mm -hmm. Um, and even through my first couple of years of hunting, really, I was vegetarian because I wasn't very successful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But my wife and I, when we got married, we came to the agreement that we were uh, only going to eat meat if either we hunted it or raised it. Um, so I really appreciate that philosophy of only eating an animal you loved, um, which you could debate about with the hunting thing. But I grew up around a lot of livestock. Uh, yeah. I was I ran a little business with my with my brother, and we took care of people's livestock. We were homeschooled, so we were the only people around during like school uh, season and whatnot. We'd take care of everyone else's livestock when they went on vacation or when they were gone for a couple days or something like that. So, um, yeah, we were always out feeding other people's chickens or, uh, taking care of their meat rabbits or milking the goats or something like that. So I grew up around a lot of livestock and I, I've always really loved animals, but, um, that connection with your food is kind of hard to find in today's world, uh, especially if you live in a, in a larger city or suburban area. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I much rather have someone be a vegetarian than eat factory meat and and eat meat in a way that that is not uh, mindful. You know, I, I I really have a ton of respect for for vegetarians and vegans, and, and uh, much prefer that over over sort of blind omnivorousness. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't really have any idea what goes into the modern meat industry, though. Um, for sure. For sure. Let's go ahead and, and jump kind of into the the process of breaking an animal down then. Um, yeah. Well, before we before we touch on that, any any words about slaughter that you want to offer for the someone who's slaughtering and butchering at home if we're sure. orienting yeah. that direction? Yeah, I can sort of sort of take through the, the whole process from from live animal down to breaking down. So, uh, you know, I, I do do slaughter and to me it's very important that I, I've learned how to do that, know how to do that and continue to do that. It's something I sort of dread every time I have to do it. Um, it yeah. I find it very uh, emotionally, psychologically uh, taxing process. Um, but I also I would agree. recognize how, um, how important it is to be able to provide that service to people, teach people how to do it uh, in the most humane way possible. So the way I approach it is I, I use a captive bolt stun gun, which is uh, for people who have seen or read No Country for Old Men. It, it's it's the 
it's apparatus that the the assassin in that uses. And so what it is, is it's a uh, technically it's a firearm. Um, it uses a cartridge that's essentially what a 22 would use. Um, and it's a long barrel uh, that has a trigger on it. The, when you pull the trigger, the, the piston hits the cartridge, which shoots out a small rod from the barrel that penetrates the, the animal's skull and renders them unconscious and insensible. The reason I like the captive bolt stun gun as opposed to using a 22, which a lot of people use, is you, you have to actually be touching the animal and up against it. Yeah. And to me, that's really important to be holding the animal uh, and, and to be right next to it. Um, and so I've been in a pen and I've ha- had to wait 20, 30 minutes before I can pull that trigger to make sure, uh, particularly with pigs who are so um, intelligent and, and aware of what's going on, to make sure that that animal is in a calm state. The, the, I do that for the for the animal, but also actually uh, a, a highly stressed animal can really uh, negatively impact the quality of the meat itself. So it's not just an ethical thing, but it's also, uh, I guess, a more technical thing, an epicurean thing. It, it makes a better product. A, a quality. Animal. Yeah, exactly. A calm animal produces a higher quality product in the end. So once the animal is insensible, uh, I double check to make sure it is. Uh, and you look for sort of the signs we've all learned from watching uh, cartoons. The tongue is sticking out and the, um, the, the, when you go to touch the um, near the eye of the animal, it's not blinking. So you look for the tongue hanging out, the eye sort of uh, glassy eyed and not moving. Once I make sure that that that's the case, I then stick the animal and that means I'm, I'm cutting its throat. And that's to allow it to bleed out. Uh, when when I stick the animal, I'm looking for uh, a gush of blood, which can again it can be quite cartoonish. It's uh, the first couple times I did, I was surprised by how much it really is like a Quentin Tarantino movie. When you when you get a good stick, it really uh, squirts out really quickly because what you're doing is you're cutting the aorta, you're cutting the two main um, the main uh, vessels for that uh, bring the blood into the heart and out of the heart. And so I'm looking for two different colors of blood. I'm looking for a very bright red blood mm. and then a much darker purplish blood. Uh, and so a good stick, those will both sort of gush out um, very quickly. Uh, during that process, the, the animal might be sort of spazzing and jerking around. That's not due to, to pain that that is just uh, the, the uh, nerves firing off. Um, but it's not feeling anything, although that can throw you the first few times. I mean, it still throws me sometimes, but um, that's why you check before to make sure it truly is insensible. And, and then yeah, once it's bled out, um, I will, uh, if it's a pig, sometimes I scald it, which putting it in hot water, 165 degrees, and then we scrape the hair off the pig. Other times I'll skin the pig and with uh, goats and lambs um, and sheep, uh, I skin them. Uh, yeah. sometimes the homesteader or farmer wants to keep those skins. So I tr- try to keep the, the whole pelt intact. Um, and before we continue, yeah. uh, most, most people at home aren't going to have a captive bolt stun gun. Do you just recommend using a 22 at that point? You can use a 22 if you have that. If this is something you think you'll be doing, uh, every, every season or a couple times a season, uh, I would highly recommend investing in a captive bolt stun gun. 
part of the reason I was drawn to it, not just because it forces uh, a close contact with the animal, but I didn't grow up, uh, unlike you, I didn't grow up around guns. And so it wasn't something that felt super comfortable to me. And the, there was something yeah. about the captive bolt stun gun that felt um, more, I mean, it is literally contained. It's not a flying projectile. Uh, if I grew up uh, hunting and stuff, I think I probably would uh, maybe use a twenty two more often, but, but, I didn't. So, uh, you know, there's n- no judgment. I, I think using a, a 22 is totally, uh, totally f- a fine thing to do if that's the way one wants to go about it. Um, okay. Just curious. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, and so then after I've skinned the animal, uh, I eviscerate it. And that, that, uh, technically is the most sort of challenging part of the process. Uh, you know, obviously taking the animal's life is the most sort of emotionally hard part of but uh, when you're eviscerating the animal, that's when you really can can do some damage to the carcass because you, what you have to do is you're you're taking the innards out and and most importantly you're taking the gut out and you you have to be really careful not to rupture anything in the process of eviscerating it because of course you don't want to cover the the inside of the animal with with fecal matter. Um, yeah. So you you uh, you start by. Um, cutting around the anus and, and loosening that. And then you can pull, then you can, you, once you've sort of loose cut around the anus and, and loosened that you, uh, start from the sort of, uh, the sort of center of the hind legs and you cut through, through the, the belly of the animal with the blade facing towards you rather than into the animal. That way you're, you minimize the risk of cutting any organs. I'm sure it's similar when you're field dressing an animal, uh, when you're hunting, you want to do that in one smooth motion. Uh, then you can tie the bunghole, the anus so that when you pull it through, nothing comes out. Then you can reach in, pull the tube that, that leads to the anus, pull that out. And then everything using gravity, if you're hanging the animal from, from a gambrel, I, I prefer to, you, you know, that's why I would, when I'm working with farmers, ask if they have a tractor on hand so that we can hang it from the bucket or, or a forklift. And then the gravity uh, along with some gentle pulling really will do most of the work. And then you can pull um, the, the guts out uh, and you, that you want to, again, be careful not to cut or, or rupture the anything in the guts and also with the liver, make sure you don't uh, puncture the um, there's, there's a little bile sac on that. It's sort of a greenish yellow and you don't want to puncture that. Then uh, below the diaphragm is what we call the pluck, which is the lungs and the heart. And then you want to pull that out, which is a separate unit. Um, And then you've eviscerated the animal. At that point, I like to uh, hose it down one more time. Um, a pressure washer is really great, but you can just use a hose and you want to be using potable water. Um, and then you let that hang. And that's something a lot of, uh, farmers and homesteaders aren't, aren't that aware of and haven't really thought about is the importance of hanging a carcass. Depending. How long do you generally recommend hanging? Yeah. So that's a great question. So it depends on the size of the animal and the species. Um, so a, a, full-grown pig, a market weight pig, so basically 200 pounds or above, you want to really hang for at least two days and up to a week. With, okay. with lamb, you can hang, you can get away with one day. And again, I, I tell people you can hang that for up to a week. People are surprised by that, but um, a, a week is a, a good amount of time. And what sort of conditions do you want to hang it in? 
Perfect. Yeah, great question. So that's really crucial. You want to hang it uh, ideally in a, in a temperature between 32 and 42 degrees and um, around 60 to 75 percent humidity. That what the hanging is doing is allowing uh, rigor mortis to complete its process. And, and so that's why I say a minimum of one day for lamb and a minimum of two days for pigs. So that's how long that process can take. Um, in the, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And that's why with, with steer, with, with beef, you're going to hang it for at least two weeks. But the other things that's happening is uh, you're, you're losing water content. Now, from a farmer's point of view or a butcher's point of view, that just means you're losing weight, which means there's less to sell. But from a, if you're doing it yourself, that means you're concentrating the flavors and you're getting a, a nicer quality meat. Um, okay. So the water is evaporating. The other thing that's happening is because the regulatory system of the animal is turned off, um, there are certain enzymes which which uh, are released in the in the animal, and those enzymes are starting to break down those proteins which means you're starting to get a more tender meat. And that's why we dry age beef, for instance, is that's just an extension of that process that I'm talking about of, of the water evaporation and that enzymes breaking down the proteins in the meat, uh, yielding a, a uh, hmm. better flavor um, and a more tender meat. Eventually a long enough period of time, those enzymes are breaking down the meat and releasing flavors that are sort of, essentially buried within the protein, the peptides are being released. And that's a reason why I, I'm one of many reasons why I'm such a huge fan of pasture raised animals because they're having a much richer and varied diet. The flavors that start to emerge in, in the meat, it becomes much more complex and much more interesting. Um, and so that's why yeah. like, if you ever have like a dry cured ham that's hung for a year, you can start to get notes of melon and apple, various grasses and, that's because those peptides. Fascinating. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had an, uh, anything that's been aged that long. Uh, mm. So that, that sounds interesting. I may have to uh, see what I can uh, find at some point. And yes. Give it, yeah. give it a, a chop. Yeah. There's a picture I love in Sweden who uh, he, he hangs, he, he do, does mostly dairy cows. And I, I'm a huge fan of uh, eating called dairy cows. So, you know, these are, these are, animals that are 10, 12 years old, they're no longer producing enough milk to, to be worth keeping. And uh, so the, this butcher in, in Sweden, he'll hang the round, which is the hind, hind leg of a, a cow. He'll hang it for nine months in, in his basement. Oh, wow. The meat is as much like blue cheese as it is like a steak. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, I've wanted to get into curing, uh, over the last couple of years and, and try some cures and things, but nine months in your basement, that's a, that's a long time. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay. So, so that, that takes us through aging um, anywhere from a day to yeah. a week or a couple of weeks. It sounds like, um, which is great temperature wise yeah. and whatnot. That's, that's why slaughter has traditionally been a fall activity is a, I mean, you had to wait for the animals to grow yeah, all, all yeah. year and then B slaughter time is, is when it cools down, you can actually have a chance to age it. Um, at this point, uh, I feel like it's a lot easier to deal with because you don't necessarily, you still know it's an animal, but it doesn't, you don't identify with it as much as an animal, as an animal, if it's skin off and, and guts out and head off and things like that. At that yeah. point, it starts looking more like a carcass and you can, 
it, it's a little easier to deal with um, psychologically. Yeah, from being a pig to being pork. Yeah. So um, how, how do you go around breaking it down from here after it's been aged? So uh, it really depends on, on what the, the customer is looking for. Um, and, you know, one thing I like to tell people is there's really no wrong way to butcher an animal. There are sort of standards and, and uh, standard cuts and standard ways of breaking the animal down. But, but you know, you, you can, there's no, you can't really mess up. You, you might lose a cut here or there, but it's still going to be meat in the end. The, the yeah. you know, cuts vary and, and ways of breaking animals down vary uh, throughout the world. And that's one of the, for me, one of the fun things, uh, especially when I'm traveling, is learning new cuts and seeing seeing these different methods for cutting. Um, I I learned a sort of hybrid method of, of sort of the more standard American way of cutting and a, a more sort of European-influenced, German and Italian-influenced way of cutting. Um, and so it's a combination. It, it's sort of a little bit of seam butchery, which uh, is a more sort of European-style butchery, which really means... Uh, following the structure of the muscles and and then a yep. traditional American style, which is sort of, you know, giving you your classic sort of uh, m- more industrialized influence uh, cuts. But basically, whether it's a, a, a pig, a lamb or a beef, the first thing is to break it down into quarters. And those are your your main primals. Um, so with with lamb, goat and beef, your your primals or your quarters are your um, you have the the uh the um the shoulder uh with with the forearm or foreleg on it usually my favorite part of the animal then uh you have you have the loin section i mean then you have the rib section which is the uh from from the end of the shoulder to where the ribs end and so that includes your uh on on beef your ribeyes on, on lamb and goat, your rib chops, those, those lollipop chops, and also includes your uh, short ribs. Um, and then you have the loin section. So on beef, that would be your uh, your New York strip or your T-bones or your porterhouses, um, as well as the flank section, which is where you would get your flank steak, you could get your skirt steak, uh, bavette, et cetera. Um, and on hmm. lamb or goat, that's where you would get your little, your little lamb chops, the little T-bone lamb chops. Um, and then you have your, your, uh, hindquarter with your, which is your leg on lamb or goat or on beef. It's called your round. And that's where you get your ground round, your, your top round and bottom round, which can be cut into London broil. Also make my, my, that's where you get, uh, the best cut for like doing a roast beef. Um, yeah. And then, uh, why, why do they call it a round in beef? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know why they call it around. I mean, it is a big, basically ball of, of muscle around the thigh bone. Um, yeah, I actually don't know the origins of, of that term. That's a great question. Uh, I just so wonder why it was different for beef rather than the other animals. That's yeah. No, I mean, you know, it's so odd. You get a lot more cuts out of it and, and can do a lot more with it. Um, yeah. Now on pork, it's a slightly different structure for uh, what what will be an obvious reason, which is there's a part of part of the uh, pork which we value highly in this country and throughout the world, which isn't that valuable on the other animals, which is the belly. So the primals on the pork would be your shoulder, your loin section, which includes the uh, all your pork chops, 
your belly, which is where your bacon comes from, but also your spare ribs. And then the, the hind leg, which on pork we call your ham. Um, yeah. And the way I like to tell people to think about the structure of an animal is if you think of an animal as essentially a bridge. Uh, so you have the, the, the four legs and the hind legs. Those are supporting the animal and those bear all the weight and they're doing most of the work. Then you have the middle of the animal that's just sort of hanging there. And when you think about uh, the the life of the animal, and again, uh, this becomes more significant when we're talking about either wild game or pasture raised animals, is the shoulder and the 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 for uh, the forearm. That's where the animal is doing the most work, right? Because that animal's walking yeah. around, but not only walking around, because these animals are eating throughout the day, especially with with grazers like like uh, sheep and cows. Um, but also pigs who are constantly plowing up the earth um, and rooting around. They're, they're moving their head. They're, their head's going up and down all day. So those muscles are getting the most work, which means those muscles have the most flavor because there's so much activity. But it also means they have the most connective tissue. So that means that those cuts tend to be tougher, but also yeah. has the most um, most sort of fat, integrated into it so the most sort of what we call marbling um and you get that in the shoulder yeah yeah so because when when you look at a pork shoulder like look at the copa which is the um the the eye of the shoulder it's such a beautiful piece of meat um and if you cut it properly it's an incredibly rich tender piece of meat um but you have to know how to sort of seam it out and everything but that's why your shoulder uh, is the best for like ground meat and making sausage. It has a 70-30 yeah. fat ratio, which is your perfect ratio for making, making sausage. But it's also great for braising. And, and now as we're getting into fall, that's one of my favorite parts of fall is, is braising meat. So the bra- the process of braising, the uh, you're breaking down the, the uh, connective tissue. That becomes gelatin, which is why the sauce in a braise is, has a thick, unctuous quality. Plus the fat is, is keeping the meat, um, uh, which is becomes really important when we're sm- when we start talking about smoking, like a brisket or something. That that fat is hydrating the meat and keeping it from drying out. Um, yeah, and and also from a curing point of view, the the shoulder becomes really fun. Whether you're doing a copa with pork or um, or making dry curd sausage, um, so so you've got your shoulder, which has from my point of view is, is the best cut of meat. And that's because it has so much flavor, so much fat, and there's a lot of versatility there. When you get into the middle section, there's not a lot of work being done, which is why a lot of people love, love the, the pork chops and, and York strips and ribeyes. They're more tender, um, but they also don't have quite as much flavor, which is maybe why you often cook them with um, a lot of butter or oil or something um, or marinate yeah. them. And then when you get to the hind leg, it the, that hind leg does a fair amount of work, but not as much as the foreleg. So it, it it's uh, slightly tougher than than a cut you might get from the center of the animal, but not as tough um, as as a cut from the shoulder, but also not quite as flavorful. Okay, but those are those are the ones that I think most people. Um most people value are all the roasts and whatnot that come out of the back leg. Is that correct? 
Well, uh, some people, I mean, it, I guess it probably depends uh, what sort of culinary tradition people are using. I mean, like I said, the, the, from like a beef, the, you get your top round and bottom round, which make fantastic roast beef. I, you know, I love roast beef for, for, uh, you know, a Sunday roast or just for sandwich meat. And I love a London broil, uh, you know, a thick cut London broil, but I, with a London broil, I almost always will do a marinade or something. And part of the reason I do a marinade is to help tenderize the meat, the, the, um, the acid <laughs> in the marinade and, and the oil in the marinade will help both uh, add moisture and also help to break down some of the connective tissue in there. I think traditionally in America, the most surprised cuts are, are those center cuts, uh, whether it's your baby back ribs, your pork chops, your New York strips, your ribeyes, your T-bones, um, or your lamb chops. Those tend to be the, the cuts that go the most quickly and people are most familiar with. Okay. I've, I've, I guess that's because uh, I look at it from kind of the, the hunting point of view, and it seems sure. like people really value the back straps and tenderloins, and then they really value the hind leg um, and the various muscle groups that go into that. But Yeah, that makes sense. You, you said it's the, the, the European influence. It's mainly seam butchery because that's all I've ever really done. It's I'm butchering at home with just a, sure. a knife. Yeah. Um, so, so from, from a, like a home butcher perspective, is there, is there a route that you would take or suggest taking for people? There's a, there's a good reason why you tend to do seam butchery uh, when you're home with dealing with game, which is you don't have a book bandsaw, right? To, to help cut yeah. bones. So the only way to really, go about it is to follow the seams of the muscle and peel them off the bone. Um, and so I, what I don't think, I mean, I, even at my home, my butcher shop in my basement at home, I don't have a bandsaw, but if it's something you think you're going to get into and do again, like once a year or a couple times a year, I would recommend getting a bone saw, a hand bone saw, which just basically looks like a giant hacksaw um, just to help you cut through some of those bones. But yeah, I think seam butchery is definitely a good way to go about it. If you're doing something at home, it helps you avoid having to uh, deal with all the bones that, that are hard to, to cut through without a bandsaw or a bone saw. And you know, that there's a lot of great uh, YouTube videos. Uh, my, my mentor, Brian Mayer has some great videos online that you can watch. Um, Do you know what his YouTube channel is called? Is it under his name? I, you know, I think a lot of them are actually he did for Bon Appetit. So, so you might look uh, look at the Bon Appetit videos, which have become quite popular. Um, yeah, I'll look those up and see if I can link to them for people. Yeah, that'd be a great idea. And Brian Mayer now, he's the um, director of the Butcher's Guild of America. Um, so you can also okay. find him through that. And then Adam Danforth uh, wrote a really great book. Um, about butchering, uh, published by by my publisher, Story Publishing, um, and he's he's a wonderful resource. I always recommend people who are interested in getting into butchering at home get his books. He has one book just on beef, and then a book on um, uh, pork, lamb, and uh, goes into a little bit rabbit and chicken. And I believe he has a book that just came out or is about to come out just on chicken. Um, Okay. Yeah, would, yeah, you get a couple important tools. It's good to get like a nice uh, boning knife and uh, maybe one larger knife for, for cutting some steaks and, and chops and then get a, get a bone saw. And I would recommend getting a cleaver. And here's the thing that always surprises people uh, is you want to get a nice mallet to go with your cleaver. You know, 
I don't do what you see in the movies or the cartoons with just swinging your, your, your cleaver down. That's really dangerous. <laughs> Position, you know, cut one thing to think about when you, when you're doing it at home is you always want to be cutting meat. You never want to be sawing through meat. So, so when you get to the, so you want to cut through the muscle with your knife. And then once you hit the bone, then you can either bring your bone saw in and, and saw until you go through the bone and then stop cut again. With okay. your knife. Or if you're going to use your cleaver, cut through the muscle with your knife, then rest your cleaver on the bone. And with the mallet hit the top of the cleaver with the mallet to bring it down. That way you're not swinging your cleaver like a wild man and, and possibly messing up the cut or even worse. Uh, yeah that's kind of a, a humorous uh visual you see it a lot yeah, yeah some yeah. old movies and whatnot but for sure um how large of a bone can a cleaver really go through like what bone should people be doing and not doing yeah no, that's a great question mostly i like to use the cleaver um when when i'm cutting pork chops or, or steaks off an animal or, or uh, lamb chops so uh through essentially the vertebrae um, and it, and be, it, the, okay. the nature of the structure of the vertebrae makes it a little easier because you're going through thinner bone and also mostly the, the sort of connective tissue, the cartilage and stuff connecting the vertebrae. So you might end up with slightly thicker chops than, than you're used to, but that way it, it's much easier to do at home. Uh, then when you're, if you want to do like a ham steak, for instance, or, or a leg, leg steak, round steak, um, if you're going to try to get through the, the femur, the thigh bone, you're going to want to use your bone side. That, that's going to be pretty hard to uh, do with um, a, a cleaver. And the other reason you might not want to use a cleaver on one of those bones is because that those bones are hollow. They're filled with marrow. and But because they're hollow, they can shatter more easily. And you don't want bone shards ending up in your stick. That that would be horrible if, you, if you're eating down, you know, chomping down on something and all of a sudden a bone shard, you know, cuts into your the roof of your mouth. But but the marrow in in those bones are are uh, delicious and, and rich, and yummy. So look out for. Do you do you have any recommendations for when people are looking for? Uh, you just mentioned a boning knife, a cleaver, a you know, mallet, you know things like that. What sort of things should they be looking for in a knife? Um, do you have any recommendations for finding a good knife, good knives, or anything like that? Yeah, so I'm a Victory Knox guy. Uh, that's what I was trained on, and that's what I've always bought. They're great butcher knives. They're they're uh, done. They're they're sort of um, American and European style knives. Um, that Swiss okay. that, that uh, they're the ones who also make your classic sort of Swiss Army knife. And then um, there's another company. I think they're based out of uh, New New Zealand. That's really popular called Victory. Uh, then you have. Uh, Dick, which is a German company, which makes great knives. Um, uh, th- those are the main ones I would recommend and the, that I've used. And then I've started to get into uh, some Japanese style knives, which I really love. Um, different different shape knives and, and different style. Uh, and those are often made carbon steel, which I really like. Um, and I can't recommend a brand, uh, but I can find the website and email that to you and maybe you can link to it if you want uh they make some really nice skin yeah that'd be good stuff. um but yeah victory victory Knox, and uh fk dick are, are classic uh butcher knives and, and really good oh uh dexter is another good one good that'll give people uh you know some some ideas and where they need, should go to find a, a decent knife uh i know i don't really have any 
good knives for, for butchery. I just use whatever kitchen knives I have on hand at the moment when I'm taking some apart, but uh, it would really be handy if I invested in some nicer knives. So yeah, no, it's worth the investment. The, the other thing is uh, if you, uh, you know, if, if there's a lot of like junk stores or sort of old antique stores, keep your eyes out for those old uh, butcher equipment. They're great. I mean, the quality of steel was much higher back then than it is now. And um, yeah. those are really fun. So I always pick those up whenever I see them. And it's for me, it's really fun then trying to restore them and get the edge back on them. And uh, But that's a great another great place to get good knives. And the, like I said, those, those old knives, are the smaller companies and stuff, but the quality tends to be really high on them. Huh. Yeah, that's something I'm going to have to keep an eye out for. Um, I really like restoring old like hand woodworking tools and things like yeah. that. Um, I think it's a ton of fun to find an old tool and bring it back to life and get it back to functioning. So I got to have the same, same joy with a, with a knife. So, um, so we kind of, we kind of talked to you, you were breaking down quarters and, and whatnot. Um, and we mentioned some of the various cuts that you're going to get out of each section. Um, I actually need to, I probably need to go read you. You mentioned Dan, Adam Danforth's book. Uh, I, I need to figure out which, muscle group some of these are and what cuts they're best for but um any recommendations or thoughts or anything like that for where you go with that from there with people sure so like with the shoulder um again that that's i think that's the best place to get your ground meat whether you're just going to have some ground meat or whether you want to make a sausage with it um yeah that you can just basically just you you don't have to be that careful just trim the meat off the bone and, and collect that. And then you'll grind it, put it through your grinder. Um, whether you have a grinder specifically, or you can buy an attachment from your mix master or whatever, um, standing mixer. And, uh, but those are also, uh, the best cuts for brazing. And so you can leave those, uh, bone in or try to remove the bone. If you want to, I, I think, you know, you might, if you're going to braise it, you might as well keep the bone in. That's just going to add more flavor to the, to the braise in the end. Um, so you can leave the shoulder whole or you can sort of cut it into smaller pieces. And again, with braising, you don't have to be super careful because in the, uh, how you're cutting, because in the end that meat's just going to be sort of falling apart and, and, um, cooking in, in those delicious juices. Um, that makes sense. You, if you're starting interested in like curing with pork you can pull one of my favorite muscle groups which is uh in in italy we call it the copa or or the nape which is in the top of the shoulder there's sort of the eye it's actually an extension of what would be your ribeye um and that's a a really wonderful uh uh muscle that uh you can put under salt and other flavors and then cure for three months to six months in your uh hmm. in the right conditions which for for curing you want to be around uh uh 50 degrees and about um 70 75 humidity to get the proper uh, moisture loss um on that note uh you you just mentioned that your favorite cuts came from the shoulder because you liked yeah. the the brazing and uh, a lot of the stuff that came out of there my wife and i are our, our favorite sections out of the elk we got last year um, ironically enough, were the shanks. Um, we really, really liked yeah, the shanks. Yeah, I was just about to say the shanks. We took off of them. Yeah, it, it's an incredible brazing cut. Um, so the shank comes on the uh, on the on the 
bottom part of the legs on so you get that on the shoulder and on the the, uh, hind leg and there's so much connective tissue in there so much cartilage and as that cooks down and breaks down it it creates the the, uh, such a rich sauce to accompany your meat and the texture of the meat can have this unbelievable silky quality so i i love shanks pork shank lamb shank uh beef shank it's just really delicious and it's really rich plus you're also getting some of that marrow in there uh, so it, yeah, incredibly uh, delicious and and really fun to deal with. Um, so then you get into the uh, to the um, rib section. You know, you you that's where you would get your your classic rib chops or rib eyes from, and then you you have the actual ribs themselves, and those again are great braising cuts. Or if you cut them thinly, and this really you would need a a bandsaw to cut them really thin on the bone, but those are great actually on the grill, um, marinated. Huh. And then with the loin, it's a similar thing. You, you've got your, your classic pork chops or lamb chops or, or, uh, T-bones or your tenderloin. That's where your back straps from. But then you get further down on the animal into the, the, the flank of the animal or, or the belly on the pork. And there's some really great cuts there. So there's the skirt steak, the flank steak, Again, depending on the size of the animal, you, you, it may be worth pulling them or maybe just uh, you just keep them uh, not – you don't really bother them and put them in, into your trim pile for grind. Um, yeah. So on lamb, one, one dish like on lamb is you can take that and, and sort of the breast there, the flank there, and um, that you can sort of open it up like a pocket and stuff it and, and – um, that's stuffed lamb breast. And that's a popular dish I know in, in Eastern Europe. Um, and then with, uh, good idea. I tried that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not my favorite, but some people love it. Um, I do like taking lamb ribs and just, uh, slow roasting those. Those are really delicious. Um, and then pork belly, you know, you can either turn that into bacon, uh, cure that and smoke it. Um, or you can, uh, cook with pork belly fresh. I love I love fresh pork belly, so I make a lot of soups and stews with it, or just you know slow roast it. And there's so much fat on there that you don't have to worry about adding any really other uh, liquid to it. It will it will keep the meat really moist. Um, you can keep the skin on the belly, and that can get really crispy and and uh, crunchy and delicious. Um, and then with the high, that is leg, the interesting thing about pigs is. Sorry, I was about to say that's the really interesting thing about pigs is yeah some of the some of the things you get skin on yeah when you scald it and scrape the hair off or the bristles and whatnot is I've never actually had that but I've seen it in a number of old uh, recipes and whatnot and I I've seen some pictures of other people's stuff with their skin on I've I've never tried it I find that interesting oh it's delicious I love it now not you know can have that sort of <laughs> I don't know. How, how this will come across uh, in an uh, audible medium, but that sort of quality, that like sort of sticky gelatinous quality that, that not everybody goes for. I happen to love okay. that texture. It's why I like head cheese. It's why I like shanks. Um, but uh, yeah, I love, I love cracklins um, or uh, chitrons or, or, you know, whatever you want to call them. Um, so yeah, skin on belly is a great way to do that. Often if I'm doing a pork shoulder, I'll leave the skin on. And, and one thing that's good to do if, you, if you're looking to get some nice crispy skin is you will crosshatch the skin. 
uh, with a really sharp knife or I've even used okay. a box cutter to. And that way it lets the fat really sort of cook the skin and get it super crispy and also let some of that fat render out. Um, and yeah, it's just, uh, it's really delicious. There's also a, a sausage I like Sounds to make good. that uses pigskin. Yeah. I'm a big fan of pigskin. It's why I, I often encourage people to scald their pigs rather than skin their pigs, just because then you have more options. There's more to do with the skin. But skin also, if you're not interested in the skin, dogs love skin. And you can sort of throw the skin uh, in your oven at a really low temperature to sort of render the fat off and, and let that skin cook up a little bit and then feed it to the dogs. Dogs love it. I'm yeah. My dog would be hanging out in the kitchen all day long if I tried doing that. So yeah, um, sure. at some point I'm going to have to attempt the whole uh, pig butchery thing and uh, try scalding and do some skin on stuff. That sounds, yeah. sounds fascinating to me. Um, I'm trying to remember where you were going when I interrupted you. Do you remember? Oh yeah. Uh, we were just getting to the hind leg. So again, that's great. You know, leg of lamb, perfect roast. Um, I, I, do those uh, for the high holidays, uh, Jewish high holidays. So those are coming up, the Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. Also, I like to do it for Passover. They're great for Easter or even, you know, any sort of holiday uh, or celebratory meal. Nothing beats a leg of lamb. Uh, so, yeah, um, leg of lamb uh, is, is great for any sort of uh, celebratory meal. Um, and then, of course, you have your shanks, whether it's lamb, pork, or beef. Um, of course you're on pork, you have your ham, which, uh, I love to, uh, cure and smoke my own ham. Uh, we usually, I usually do that for, um, for Christmas or Christmas Eve dinner. My wife had uh, her family. Is the ham on a pig literally the entire back leg or yeah, is it yeah. some of it trimmed off at all? I mean, you can trim some of it off, uh, or you can leave the whole thing. Um, when okay. you're a dry a large chunk making like hamon or prosciutto or a dry cured. Uh, there's a great dry cured ham tradition in the Yunnan province of uh, China. Um, that is usually the whole thing, hoof and everything. Um, oh, wow. A more American style or like English style ham, usually the, the, the shank and trotter are cut off and it's just the big round meaty part of the, the leg. So the, that's your top round, bottom round, eye round and, um, and knuckle. Um, and so cure that. I like to cure that in a, uh, a brine of a combination of salt and sugar and other flavorings. And it can be really fun sort of playing around with what flavorings you put in those brines. So every, every Christmas I do a slightly different, uh, brine for the ham, um, and smoke that. And that, again, that's fantastic for, uh, your celebratory meal. The, uh, and then we also have a home, uh, smoked, ham every year for for easter brunch uh actually my the the folks who i mentioned in the beginning who i whose meat i grew up eating and whose farm i, I grew up playing on uh, and loving those animals they they host easter dinner every year and we eat one of their their pigs um the ham from one of their pigs uh and mm. um and then when you're talking about like elk or deer or, or beef you know those those uh produce really delicious roasts like i said those those roast beefs um, again, if you, if you're having a big party and want to really, uh, impress people, you can cook that whole round. That's That can be called a steamship roast on, on beef. Uh, it takes a long time, uh, and a lot, a lot of, uh, uh, 
uh, our muscle to, 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 you know, manage uh, cooking a big, big steamship round like that. But it's really fun. Not only that, I'm not even sure where I would end up cooking it. Uh, that's you, not going to fit in my oven. A big, <laughs> big grill pit. Um, and, uh, but you can also fabricate really, really lovely steaks from those round mussels. And then, again, with the shanks, you're just going to want to braise those. And they're delicious. Um, I'm trying to remember what we were talking. Just a couple minutes ago, you were mentioning some parts that are uh, a little more difficult to um, – that people don't often want or don't often use yeah. and yeah. getting creative with them or whatever as a butcher, um, a on, on the farm you work and then on some of the other, um, you know, the workshops you hold with people and whatnot, uh, and talking with other butchers, what are the parts you see that people don't often, or that are, that are leftovers, they don't sell as well. Um, right. you know, what, what are the parts you see that don't get used and how would you recommend going about using them and, and what would you recommend doing with them? Uh, great question. So uh, this at this point, it may not surprise uh, listeners, but because I love the shoulder so much, the front part of the animal, the, a part that gets ignored um, often is the head and neck. Now, pigs don't really have necks, but but uh, lambs, goats, <laughs> deers, elk, cow all have necks. Um, and so if you're into braising, you don't really have to do anything to it except leave it as is and braise it. And uh, when you think about, especially on those grazing animals, how much work the neck muscles are doing, um, the, the meat is incredibly flavorful and, and a ton of connective tissue, and that produces a beautiful braise. But on the head, there are some really fun... Sounds phenomenal. What's that? I said, that sounds phenomenal. I yeah. actually uh, I read a, in a book not long ago, they were talking about doing, uh, I think it was braised neck uh tacos with it and it yes. sounded phenomenal to me so i love that braised neck tacos is, are fantastic um but then you actually the head itself has some really great cuts so um one of my favorite favorite cuts and this is uh something you know when, when you, you're able to pull these you you've sort of reached uh, the next level or whatever you've leveled up in in your butchery skills is pulling the cheeks off of the skull and that's true whether it's it's lamb okay. cow, or pig those cheeks, again, when you think about what they're doing in terms of, of um, activity, especially on, on the, those cows chewing their cud or on those pigs rooting around, um, incredible flavor and uh, a lot of gelatin in them. Uh, so one of my favorite techniques is uh, I, I love Szechuan food. It's one of my favorite cuisines. And, and the last few years, I've really been exploring cooking it at home. And so a Szechuan red brace with the cheeks is, is uh, phenomenal and actually not that much work hmm. together. The the sauce, which is a combination of, of soy sauce and um, chaudron wine or mirin, and then some um, some aromatics, cinnamon, star anise, and, and chilies and uh, Szechuan peppercorns, and uh, then just put it in the oven um, with the cheeks for at a low temperature for quite a few hours, and they're divine. But on top, hmm. cheeks are the jowls, which uh, are very fatty. It's, it, you can make bacon from the jowls, um, but have this beautiful muscle in the middle of the jowl. Uh, again, that's a great braising cut. Or it's the first thing I ever cured, even before I became a professional butcher when I was still living in New York City in a small apartment, um, but starting to flirt with, with butchering. I, I went to a, a workshop down, down the street from me, and at the end of the workshop, we each got to pick a cut to bring home, and I picked the jowl. 
And I actually cured that in my apartment in in Brooklyn. Um, and it was the first piece of meat I ever cured. And it's just, it's a nice thing to play around with if you're, if you're starting to experiment with curing because it cures relatively quickly. Um, and it, it's yep. a, be a really simple cure. And the, the fat on the jowl has a, a sweetness to it that, that uh, is unique to, to that cut. I wish I understood the science better of why, why the fat in that in the jowl is different than other places. How large is the uh, the cheek or the jowl? Uh, I be honest, I've I've never tried taking them out. So how do you about go? Uh, how do you go about getting them off of the head? Is there is there a technique to doing it or a way you go in? And then how large are they really on an animal? Uh, so uh, it, it depends on the species, obviously. But um, so the yeah. jowl on a, a goat or, or lamb or sheep usually isn't worth doing much with, but the cheek can be fun if you can collect enough of them. You know, if you just have one lamb, you're going to have two fairly small cheeks. Those cheeks would be about the size of um, the the uh, pad just underneath your thumb. So not your whole palm, but sort of where your, uh, what is it when you're reading palms? Sort of, I guess, your lifeline. That pad right there is about the size of a, of a cheek from a, a lamb or, or goat. And I imagine similar to a deer on a pig, okay. the, the cheek the size of the cheek is almost the size of your palm. And so I would say one to two per person uh, when you're thinking about cooking it for preparing it for people, but the jowl itself on a pig, depending on how big the pig is, it can be the size of your whole hand up to the size of both your hands. Um, and Oh, wow. So it's a pretty big piece then. It, it's a significant piece. I mean, pigs are particularly jowly when you look at them, but, uh, you know, when, when you touch your own face and this might uh, be a little uncomfortable for people, but it's useful to think about your own muscle structure. when you're thinking about butchering, when you, you feel the soft sort of padding on your, on your cheek. So basically from, from the bottom of your lower jaw up to right underneath your, where your eye is, your eye socket. um, And then around sort of coming up to your nose and then, around your upper lip you feel that soft cushiony part that that's what the jowl is you, you really you can see the shape once you see the head uh, on your butcher block uh, of that jowl once you remove the jowl you then can see the cheek muscle which is attached to the the um to the lower uh to to the jawbone um and it's this round piece of of uh of muscle um fascinating the, the other thing you can do is you can take the whole head and slow roast that. And, and you can do that with, with any of those animals. Um, that's something I love to do, whether it's, it's lamb, uh, pork or, or beef. Um, so often, uh, like, uh, you can, like you mentioned the, uh, neck tacos, head tacos is also wonderful. You can make head cheese, uh, you can make scrapple. Um, and you just, uh, either slow roast, you know, slow roast the whole head or brace the whole head and all that delicious meat, all that connective tissue sort of falls off the bone and, and it creates a really rich, rich, uh, dish. That's something I need to experiment a little more with. Uh, I, I know there's some cuts that I, I've never really tried and never really approached. Um, you know, I did things like the tongue last year, but Mm -hmm. I didn't even, think about going in and trying to get cheek meat and things like that. So that's something I'm going to have to think about in the future. Cool. So, so moving on kind of, uh, you know, we, we touched on neck, 
uh, kind of the head in general, are there any other parts of the animal that tend to get ignored by people that you've seen? Yeah, and the heart. Um, you know, the heart is a muscle. It, we we think of it as an organ, and it is an organ. But unlike the other organs, the the heart is really actually just a muscle, just like any of the other cuts of meat we're used to eating. It does definitely has a more intense flavor, a more irony, bloody flavor. But but that muscle is delicious. And uh, you know, if you're just too squeamish about it, feed it to your dogs or cats. But I really encourage people to. If they just want to use it and don't want to think about it too much, throw it into your trim uh, and grind it with with everything else. And then the the sort of more intense flavor of the heart sort of dissipates a little bit, but you're still utilizing that muscle. But if you're interested, yeah, if you're interested in trying it, you can either braise it. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with like cooking squid or octopus, but it, it's a similar principle with heart as it is with squid or octopus, which is either you want to cook it at a really high heat really quickly, or you want to cook it at a low heat for a really long time, anything in between. And it gets a little too tough, but uh, so yeah. you can break heart. I, I'm a big fan of heart chili. Uh, but the other thing you can do, and, and the nice thing about like heart chili is that when you have some of those other stronger spices in there, it sort of mellows out the, the stronger flavor of the heart. Uh, but another great thing to do is to cut the heart into thin slivers of, of meat, throw it in and marinate, you know, you can just do like soy sauce and mirin or, or olive oil and lemon and some fresh herbs, um, garlic, whatever, or vinegar is really nice. And again, that can cut some of the, the uh, intense flavor of the heart and then just sear it off really quickly on a grill or on a flat top on a griddle. And I, I really love seared heart. It's a, it's a delicious cut. Um, and it, I find it's much more approachable than the other organ meats. Um, yeah. And and as we've talked about several times, you know, shanks, I think, often get overlooked and are just a really wonderful cut. And, and as we get into fall and winter, wonderful to, to put on the stovetop or in the oven, you know, Sunday afternoon. And then sun, by the, the time you're ready for Sunday supper, it's uh, you've got a delicious pot of meat. Yeah, really good. Have you ever done anything with the uh, I know when I, I was in um, I went down to Trinidad uh, once to go race. Mm. Um, and we definitely saw and tasted some things down there, which I have never seen in American stores. Um, mm-hmm. And I know I've, I've seen things like oxtail soup in various other countries as well mm-hmm. since then. Do you ever do things with the the tails or the, uh, I know there in Trinidad, we also saw um, hooves in things quite a bit or chicken feet or anything like that. Do you, do you tend to use parts like that? No, that, yeah, that's a really great question. So, um, doing on farm, you have a lot more option than you do when you're when you're getting your meat from USDA slaughterhouse. Uh, some of those some of those things you can't get back, depending on the slaughterhouse that it's um, gone through. And so, when you're on the farm, you you can keep those for yourselves, which is great. And so, oxtail, uh, which comes is the tail of a uh, beef, is is really great. It's similar to uh, tail or shank or head in that the there's a lot of uh collagen a lot of connective tissue that when you slowly cook that breaks down and makes a really rich sauce um and again it's just a way of utilizing every part of the animal i love oxtail and buy it whenever i can i don't process that much beef myself unfortunately and so so i don't get a lot of opportunity to bring it home but but when i see it i i I scoop it up um pigtail uh 
can be really fun to play with. There's not a lot of meat there. It's a nice thing to throw in if you're just making a really delicious stock. Uh, I use a lot of pork stock, especially during the fall and winter. Um, okay. But you can cure it and smoke it, um, which is delicious. And it's sort of almost like a, a, a snack meat or something, you know, that you just sort of nibble around around the uh, tailbones and, and that, that huh. smoky, salty meat can be really delicious. Um, yeah. Most lamb and goat breeds uh, in this country don't have really much of a tail to, to do much with. There is a, a type of, uh, there's a breed of sheep in the Middle East that has a particularly, it's famous for its very fatty, big tail. And I know that's a delicacy in the in the Middle East. I've never had the opportunity to do anything with that or try it. I have yet to travel in the Middle East. Uh, but it's something I really look forward to. And I, I have a friend who has uh, lived uh, in in, uh, in Beirut for a long time. And she's told me about that dish. And it sounds amazing. Um, yeah. And, and hooves, again, I mean, hoof is just essentially gelatin. Um, and so when you, when you include hoof in something, it's going to enrich in, enrich the sauce. Now, when you're doing an on-farm slaughter, if you're interested in keeping the hoof, just remember that hoof is walking around on the ground every day. So you want to be make sure you really, really are cleaning it carefully because, you know, there's a good chance there's fecal matter on those hooves. So when you're scalding um, a pig, for instance, again, one of the one of the things that makes scalding valuable is you actually can pop the toenail off of the hoof. You don't really think of toes as ha- uh, pigs of having toenails, but they do. Um, and so you can pull those off with a pair of pliers and then what's underneath is, is a lot cleaner. But you really want to make sure you you are cleaning that, washing that really well before you cook with that. Um, just because there there is more inherent risk there with, with getting something like salmonella or E. coli. Um, I've actually um, I've actually popped the um, yeah the hoof um, the toenail off of deer and elk before too. Sure. Yeah, you dip it in boiling water and you get it hot, and then yeah, you grab pair of pliers and you grip that off is that generally what is done before you you cook with it yes yes exactly right um and that that just okay. ensures that, that it's clean then and yeah so the, if you if you throw that into a pot that's going to create a really delicious gravy and you know the hoof is just the bottom part of the shank yeah hmm. the times when i have uh popped the hoof off it was simply to make things from the hooves i've never actually eaten that part so yeah yeah throw that in with next time uh with your braise and you're gonna have an even richer sauce hmm. something to look forward to in the future um any other parts that we haven't touched on that uh you see that tend to get ignored um yeah and you know liver for instance is, is not for everybody I, I love poultry liver i'm not as huge a fan of of uh uh, larger animal liver, um, but if if you get if you're really into cooking and curing and stuff, it's re- liver is great into to incorporate into your pates, and so it's a you, combination of ground meat, uh, a lot of fat, and and your liver, and you can make some really delicious products, which are really really good for your liver. It's really good for you. My wife um, and my daughter both are on the more anemic side of things, and so I try to find ways of, of getting liver into their diet as much as possible because it, it's such a great way to, to boost your, your vitamin B and your iron. 
Um, yeah. Kidneys, uh, it, it, it's an even uh, more acquired taste, I find, you know, because of the function of the kidneys. They, they have a slightly uric flavor to them. Uh, so I, I don't mess around with the kidneys that much, but, it, you know, I encourage people to look up recipes and, and experiment with them. Um, Give them a try. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think we've we've covered a, a lot of the pieces that a lot of people aren't going to have, have tried before or a lot of the pieces that end up going to waste. I'm particularly interested in the ones around the head because, mm-hmm. um, like I said, that's something I've never even approached before. You know, you always just – you see the head get cut off and, and you deal with right. the rest of it. So, um, yeah, that part particularly interests me. But um, – just generally, generally speaking, though, uh, I, I know there's kind of general standard cuts that that everyone does, um, or that that are most common from both a, a home butchery perspective and as a professional butcher. Are there ones that are a little less commonly done that you wish that more people would do, or take the time to do, or learn about um, when you're when you're dealing with you know nor the rest of the carcass, um, the quote unquote normal bits. Is, right. is there just a different way of processing it or different cuts that, that you can do that not very many people know about or not very many people do? Yeah, that, that's a really uh, good and fun question. I, I'm a big fan of the cuts that come off of the um, the belly or the flank. So those those uh, those are cuts that uh, all, all are pretty similar in sort of texture and, and a way to approach it. They have a, a longer uh, grain because when you think about what, what the belly is doing all day, it's expanding and contracting. And so it has that sort of accordion like, uh, uh, texture. Um, so those, those are your cuts that are more common in beef, but are really fun to try to pull off of, uh, either pork or, uh, elk or, or, or lamb or, or goat. Um, fascinating. Yeah. So, so the, the flank, the skirt, the, uh, depending on what region you're in, uh, you know, you can get a cut that could be called uh, the uh, the flap meat, which is a particularly unattractive name, but but uh, in France would be called the beef, or we we pull it and we call it uh, the secreto. Um, and, and different butchers in different regions throughout the world have different places where they where their secreto, which just means their secret cut, comes from. It's also you can get your hanger steak from from there, which is that's a muscle that sort of the pluck, the heart and, and lungs are attached to, and that literally hangs down from the animal. That's sort of uh, also has a similar texture and flavor to it. Those cuts are great on the grill, uh, great to, to cook um, on the stovetop in a, like a cast iron skillet or something. Uh, they take, uh, you can just put salt and pepper on them, but they also take marinades really well. And for me, those, those are really fun to play with and, and take the time to sort of seam them out, pull them out. Um, and, and then the diaphragm is it, that 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 is the skirt steak, and so that comes right off the ribs, right next to to where that, that flank is, and that's another great cut if, if there's enough meat there to make it worth pulling. And uh, then in in the uh, shoulder, there are some really fun cuts that it, when you take the time to to seam everything out are delicious. So I've mentioned the copa a couple times, which is that sort of the eye of the shoulder there, which is great either to dry cure or to cut into sort of boneless chops and, and throw on the grill or uh, on a, on a cast iron um, skillet underneath that is this muscle uh, on beef called the Denver steak. You can pull those from pork too, uh, or even a large enough uh, uh, lamb or goat. 
and it, it's huh. really well marbled and uh, surprisingly tender. I really love to either cube that up and do like a stir fry with it or cut strips into it. Uh, but you can also cut steaks out of it. And uh, then there's uh, a, another small muscle in there that's the second most tender muscle in the animal after the tenderloin that's actually buried in the shoulder. Uh, I think Brian Mayer has some videos of how to pull those. It's, it's pretty hard to explain over a podcast how to pull them. But those are things to, to look out for when you're, when you're looking online or, or reading Adam Danforth's book to, to, to try to figure out how to pull those. And, and those are wonderful cuts. Yeah, it's good to know that exists because I didn't know there was uh, a really good one in there. So I'm going to oh, yeah. be looking for it in the future. I'm going to have to go find some videos, figure out where it's located and how to get to it. The Terrace Major is the name of the muscle. What was that? Terrace Major is the name of the muscle. Terrace Major. Yeah, I'm definitely going to write that one down and go find a little more information on it for myself. Um, so so you have a book uh, called The Smokehouse Handbook. Gen- generally, how'd you get involved in in smoking and then... Um, can you tell people a little bit about what your book is about and what they should expect in inside of it when they buy it? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, so my book smokehouse handbook came out, uh, last, not this spring, but the spring before. So it's been out for almost a year and a half now, uh, published by story publishing. Um, feel really lucky to, to have written that. It was a really wonderful process. My relationship to smoking, um, and, and, uh, getting into smoking actually, uh, slightly predates my um, my becoming a professional butcher, although the two are very much uh, intertwined. So again, you know, w- w- uh, when I was, I mentioned bringing home that jowl and curing it when I was living in a apartment in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. That same place where I took that workshop, that was a kitchen supply store. And they it was right where my subway stop got out. And uh, I went there all the time because they had great books and great equipment. And I was really getting into cooking at home at that point. And they had a stovetop smoker. And uh, I, I, I probably looked at it almost every day for about six months before I finally <laughs> You know, honestly, it was ridiculous trying to trying to smoke in a small apartment in Brooklyn, but I couldn't resist. Yeah. Uh, so I bought in and, you know, I just started playing around first with a roast, chi- you know, smoked chicken and then with different flays of, of fish, salmon, trout, uh, haddock. And I messed up a lot uh, in the beginning, a lot of half cooked chickens and over smoked salmon. Uh, but I, I, I've always loved smoked meat, whether it's bacon or American barbecue or country ham, it's just a flavor that I've always been very attracted to. Or smoked salmon, lox, and, and smoked mackerel, smoked bluefish. My yeah. family, my mom's family's from the east end of Long Island, so smoked bluefish is a very important. Um, and of course, uh, being an Ashkenazi Jew, smoked salmon on, on Sunday mornings with our bagels was always a treat. And uh, so I, I, I couldn't give it up. I kept trying and, and playing around and, and got better at it. And then, so uh, I, I was able to convince my girlfriend to move uh, to my hometown in, in rural Massachusetts with me. And so we moved into uh, my grandmother's uh, house, um, an old colonial farmhouse from the 1700s. And we had a lot of land. It's, it's right next to my parents' house, right next to where I grew up. And I knew I wanted to start building uh, an outdoor kitchen for myself, a, a grill, etc. 
And I'm fortunate. My brother uh, is a a builder and has a lot of experience with various natural building materials, um, particularly with cob. And so he, when we decided to get married, my my girlfriend, now wife, and I decided to get married. My brother built us a, a oven, an outdoor wood fired oven, out of cob, and yep. uh, love that. And then we started talking and decided we wanted to try to build a uh, a smokehouse. At that point, I had a, a couple years of being a butcher under my belt, and so understood uh, smoking a lot better um, than I did when I first started out, and so knew sort of what I was looking for. And I really wanted to build a smoker in which I could hot smoke, cold smoke, and also pit roast, uh, which I also I consider a form of smoking. Um, and so we yeah. designed a smokehouse that could do all three things. Um, and my brother uh, built it over the course of two summers. Um, again, there were a lot of mistakes uh, we made, and, and a lot of time we had to go back and rebuild something or re-engineer something. Uh, but but we both learned a lot about the process of building a smokehouse and how how a smokehouse can can function uh, optimally. And so once that was finished, I started playing around and, and cold smoking salmon smoking our Thanksgiving turkey in there, smoking our Christmas ham in there, smoking uh, all kinds of fish, and then starting to smoke vegetables. Uh, I smoke garlic for friends of ours who have a fermented vegetable company, and they, they make a smoked garlic hot sauce, so I smoke the garlic for them, smoking potatoes. Oh, that sounds real good. Dried peppers. Um, and uh, so in the meantime, I was offering workshops, um, open to the public on, on various farms. And I did a, a two day workshop that I call pig to prosciutto in which we uh, slaughtered uh, a pig the first day. And then we broke down the pig I'd slaughtered the week before in the afternoon. And then the following day we turned all the different cuts into various cures, uh, cured meats, uh, including uh, smoked meat. So bacon, we, we made bacon, we, we smoked some tenderloin, we put the ham under cure to make prosciutto, we, copas, uh, fresh sausage, dry cured sausage, etc. And the woman who had edited Adam Danforth's book, the, the book I keep referencing, um, and she was at that workshop, um, the, the pig to prosciutto workshop. So at the end of the workshop, she wrote to me, uh, you know, thanking me for the workshop and saying how much she enjoyed it and asking me if I would be interested in writing a book about uh, building your own smoker and, and, and how to smoke meat. I couldn't say no. I come from a family. <laughs> I always wanted to write a book, although I never was sure what I would write about. And so I, I love writing and it was a wonderful process. So the book is a combination of, uh, an in- introduction to sort of the history of smoking and a, a view of, of smoking traditions throughout the world. Um, and then a sort of explanation, a, a more technical explanation of, of how smoking works, both hot smoking cold, and cold smoking um, and sort of the, the different uh, processes that are going on there and, and sort of thinking how to think about it in terms of, I like to think about it in terms of the three elements of what you're smoking, so what cut of meat or, or what vegetable or cheese you're smoking, then what temperature you're going to be smoking it at, so whether you're hot smoking or cold smoking it, and how hot you will be smoking it at, and then what what the fuel is for smoking. So are you going to smoke uh, using 
uh, fruit wood or are you going to use maple wood or oak wood or are you going to use rice and tea or are you going to use straw are you going to use pine needles and then uh then uh explanation of different styles of smokers so whether it's an ugly drum smoker or a, a hot smoker a cold smoker a pit smoker smoking on your grill you know your uh, sort of a, a, like what you might see in like argentina asada uh and, yep. and uh, a guide on how to build various kinds of smokers so including uh the the an explanation for how to build the smoker that my brother and I uh, designed and that my brother built. And then uh, a lot of recipes. Mm, sounds like a good book. I'm going to have to look into that one for sure. I, I read one, one smoking book, one meat smoking book. Um, uh-huh. What's it called? Meat smoking and meat house or smokehouse design, I think by uh-huh. the uh, Mariansky's last year. And I yeah. really enjoyed it. Uh, I think I'm going to have to read yours as well. We don't, uh, right now we live in a townhome. I've wanted to build a smoker for a while, which is hence why I read that book last year. Um, but you know, we're to live in a townhome, don't have a place to build one. So mm-hmm. after we move, I may have to uh, consider having a project in the backyard and, and building ones. Cause um, not only the meats, but for us, two of our favorite spices are chipotle powder, which is smoked yeah. jalapenos and yeah. smoked paprika. Me too. Uh, and we use a lot of smoked paprika. Yeah. So, at some point I'd like to grow my own and smoke it. And the cheese, smoked cheeses are amazing too. So yeah. Yeah. Um, How about the workshops that, that you put on? Can you tell people a little bit about those as well? Um, I'm I'm guessing are are those still going on at the moment or have they been canceled? I have workshops for um, over six months and um, just starting to sort of wrap my head around what that might look like. Uh, I am very lucky to be living in Massachusetts right now where um, uh, they've done a, we've done a really great job of managing uh, COVID-19 and, and caseloads look pretty are pretty low right now in, in, in the Northeast. Uh, but I um, have been very cautious uh, just because I live on a family compound. So I have uh, parents who, who are in the age risk and, and my dad has other health complications that, that make it, him more at risk. Um, and now that our daughter is back in daycare as of last week, also being really conscientious of, of our larger community. Yeah. And so I, I am not yet offering any public workshops. I am starting to do now that we're in the fall season, I'm starting to get emails from some people. And, and so I am being, uh, trying to want to be able to help people and work with people and, and still be very conscious of, of my community's health. And so starting to do some things, but I, I can't wait for there to be a vaccine. Uh, and then uh, I very much look forward to being able to offer uh, larger workshops again. But, but until then, I, I think they're more or less on hold. Uh, but if people are interested, you know, uh, in the future about taking workshops with me um uh you can follow me on instagram uh the roving butcher and and i also have a facebook page although i'm not that active on facebook mostly it's through instagram the roving butcher and i announce i'll announce workshops as they come up there i also uh try to share other butchers workshops since i am only doing workshops in the northeast but there's a whole country a whole world of of people who want to learn how to do this and wonderful and talented butchers throughout the country offering workshops. I always try to post those as well. So uh, Meredith Lee, oh, that'd be very helpful. 
stuff in in uh, the the southeast. Uh, Adam Danforth, who does workshops all over the the country and the world, uh, Brian Mayer. Uh, so I always try to um, try to announce those as well. That's a good way of uh, yeah helping other other butchers out and helping other folks out who want to learn who yeah frankly can't get all the way across the country to attend a workshop with you and whatnot, you know, let people know that there's still stuff going on in their area. But I understand why your, your workshops are closed down. Uh, most of the people I've been chatting with their, their workshops have been closed down or severely limited over the last little while. But um, yeah, hopefully folks go follow you and they can and see when uh, another one pops up or uh, do, you, do you have these listed on your website as well? Yes. Yes, of course. My website, uh, the roving Thank you for reminding me. Yes. Always post those on Perfect. there. Say, so, well, we'll we'll put links to both your website and your Instagram, then and Facebook as well, um, so people can follow you. And, and if they're in the nearby area or uh, going to be in the nearby area in the future, they can look and see what sort of workshops you have going on. But thanks for chatting with me, Jake. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and uh, tell us a little bit about butchery and offer some explanations to those of us who. Uh, or kind of just winging it and don't really know what we're what we're doing or what we're approaching, and uh, give us some guidelines on to to how to approach some cuts of meat that we've never dealt with before. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it, it's my absolute pleasure, and you know I, I really love helping people out. And so if, if you or any of your listeners ever have a question, don't hesitate to reach out to me. You can DM, DM me on Instagram or you can email me at therovingbutcher at gmail dot com. I love uh, answering questions. I love sharing recipes. I am uh, I am an open book when it comes to recipes I've developed myself and, and love sharing those with people. So uh, please, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Folk Craft Revival Podcast. As always, the show notes and links from this episode can be found over at folkcraftrevival.com forward slash whatever the episode number is. Uh, I should tell you right now in your, your podcast player what episode this is. I appreciate you tuning in. If you have any guest or topic suggestions, or any other feedback for that matter, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email over at daniel at folkcraftrevival.com. If you want to help the podcast grow, the best way to do that is recommend and share it with others that have like interests. Second best, go give me a rating and review over on the Apple Podcast slash iTunes platform. Um, that's the biggest podcast platform, and doing it over there will really help me rise in the the search rankings and show up to a few more people when they're looking for stuff. So, uh, in fact, while you're at it, just mash the subscribe button while you're there. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Now let's, uh, get out there and make something. <laughs>